1: Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dave Selecki. And I'm PJ Doran. And this week we have lifelong motocross and off road rider and industry insider Jay Clark. But first, some big news for Pit Pass Moto. Our new major sponsor is Moto America.
0: Moto America, as we know, is the official road racing series of the United States, AMA road racing series for the U.S., and it is, of course, led by its premier class super bikes. Those are 190-plus mile-an-hour bikes with the best and baddest riders the United States and, for that matter, the world has to offer. We've got a fair contingent of international racers. That's my favorite part of the whole series.
1: All cool stuff, and it seems like they're working to bring in some really exciting things like the family fun zone for kids and and bring the families in, you know, free carnival and games for the kids, stunt shows, electric kids' bikes, all these neat amenities to try to draw in people that wouldn't maybe normally go to a road race. They're trying to draw them in and it really helps spread the word for the series. I think
0: it's great. Every year they've been making meaningful improvements and and trying to make it, as you said, a a family event to include really getting all of the spectators and fans involved with the racers. They get you down in the pits. They have on the schedule, announced times where you, fans can walk through the paddock. They have track access during certain parts of the day where fans can walk on the actual race surface. And it's a pretty cool way for kids, adults, everyone to get down and actually shake hands, get an autograph, do anything with the actual contenders in the series.
1: And how cool is that when you can go to a major event major motorsport event like that and meet the actual heroes of the sport meet them one-on-one talk to them like you said shake their hand it's uh, kind of a page out of the nascar book where they focus on getting people more involved with the racers directly and you get to see their faces because most of the time they're on motorcycles wearing helmets going 190 miles per hour around the racetrack and you get to meet them one-on-one and uh, get to know the rider which i think is a I think it's the thing that helps really promote and bring people from the outside into the series which is what it needs to
0: grow. The fan wants to follow the guy they know and they they can recognize his motorcycle. It's all those are all things that really enhance the fan experience and they certainly have got a wide array of opportunities if you aren't able to attend a live event that you can actually still witness the racing witness the spectacle that is the racing from things like moto america live plus which i've had a subscription to for the last couple of seasons that's an all-day streaming application that allows you to see everything that's happening at the track i watch practice i watch qualifying I watch it all through Moto America Live Plus. And then, of course, they've got their partners at FS2 doing live Saturday and Sunday superbike races. And then there's all kinds of wrap ups after the race weekend is completed. You can uh, go back and see stuff both on FS2 and MAV TV, they, as well as NBCSN, that's got a number of things that, uh, that they're offering so that fans can follow along and really get the inside dope on what's going on at the track. So
1: well done, Moto America. The thing I'm excited about is the technology insights, because Dave's kind of a gearhead, right? So I'm, I'm really looking forward to some of the, some of the behind the scenes talk about tires and technology and electronics and all the things they're doing to make those motorcycles go that fast around the course.
0: Yep, I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully we're gonna see a bunch of racing from our new sponsor that we couldn't be more proud of, Moto America. How about that trivia question for this week, Dave? You want to read it off? It's a pretty good one. Uh, It had me stumped completely, but it's probably right up your alley.
1: This week's Pit Pass trivia question of the week is, who is the only professional racer to win events in 125cc motocross, 250cc motocross, supercross, super bikers, and a national championship road race? More about that guy when we come back later. All right. Coming up next on Pit Pass Moto, our guest, Jay Clark. He's a lifelong member of the industry in power sports, and uh, he's been doing it for over 30 years. And I always say that Jay invented the project bike as a business, and he would probably want to talk about some of that today. Jay, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I said at the intro that uh, I felt you invented the project bike as a business. Now, going back in time, when you first started doing project bikes, I know you did it when uh, when you worked for Wysco and then it kind of evolved into what you're doing now. What was the thing that started or planted the seed for that for you as a, not just a, a thing to promote products, but almost turned into a business?
2: So it kind of started, first of all, as you know, I, I started at Weissco in around 93 or so. And that's when I kind of helped create a position there that they were looking for somebody to help promote the brand out West. Wysco being in Ohio, didn't have a lot of representation out west with all the magazines, and back then there were really, oh, you know, no, no internet and all that. So it was it was about promoting with the magazines, with the race teams, and all the all that industry that's out here. So I was able to kind of pitch Weissco on that. And at the time, the project bike thing really wasn't much of a thought, other than trying to get the products tested in the magazine and used and so forth. So that was kind of the main goal at that time. And then. As it evolved, I worked for Weissgo for quite a while, as you know, about uh, 12 years or so in total. And when when I started, I was mainly going to races, and I worked a lot with the race teams and trying to get our products onto those teams. And so that evolved where I kind of, I don't want to say got sick of it, but I didn't like going to the races a lot. And especially working on Sundays, I preferred not to, and then the travel was really tough. So one of the things I tried to start segueing into was finding an avenue that I could kind of create some value without having to go to the races. And so that's why I kind of came up, that's how the project bike thing and being more involved with magazines and media became more of a priority was, hey, I can prove my value here without having to go to races every week. And that, that, you know, it just gets, it gets pretty old. It's the travel part that stinks. I don't, I don't mind going to the races themselves, but the, the flying, and this was all before 9-11 for the most part, and then after 9 a little bit. But uh, before 9-11, flying was a lot more pleasant or less bad.
1: Yeah, you could almost say it was easier before then, but uh, it definitely got more complicated as time went on. And it's interesting how that evolved from relationships with race teams and trying to get the product out there and get it promoted, turning into what it is. And I always wonder, you know, Today, what's driving the demand for the project bikes? Is it something that's a marketing plan or is it more magazines looking for content or, hey, we've got cool new product we want to kind of show the world?
2: I think it's a combination of all that. I think I think back to like when I was in high school and one of the biggest uh, things you would look at was Hot Rod Magazine, right? Even though you, you knew that you couldn't afford anything in there for the, that built Camaro or whatever it was. Right. But they would have this, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand dollar Camaro all built with everything. And that's kind of what's kind of segued into is that in, even in dirt bikes, even though most guys are cost conscious and want to ride a lot and not so concerned with having the best or the most blingy thing out there, that there is a desire to see what they can do. And so having a lot of content for these, uh, builds, was something that, that I think a lot of, shows a lot of value to a lot of the uh, magazines. And so that's one thing. And then now as as it's evolved to a lot of videos and online content that people are looking for more content and seeing what, which pieces of that they can do on their own builds. And the ICJ, your involvement with All Balls Racing Group,
0: they're an innovator, it seems, in the industry as far as I work at a dealership and I'm interacting constantly with the group of brands that all Balls Racing Group represents. How do they stay so at the front end of development? Because they're constantly coming out with new products. That's what I'm most impressed with about them is that there's constantly new materials that, I, dare I say, I, I was unaware we needed, but they're determining what the market needs at a, at a pretty impressive pace.
2: Yeah, and that's so. That's the group I work for now. One of the main companies I work for now, and they own a lot of brands. They bought one of the companies that I worked for for quite a while in uh, CNL, which was Kurt Leverton, and and they owned Hot Cams, Hot Rods, Pivot Works, Cylinder Works, uh, Vertex. They owned all those brands, and then All Balls Racing Group bought all those and put them all into one deal with a bunch of other brands and they have tremendous resources to be able to look at what the market needs for like you wouldn't think there was a market for fuel pumps right but there is so there's a market for fuel pumps and carburetor rebuild kits and all kinds of little things that you just wouldn't think would exist but they do because the stuff wears out and and the, the oem parts can be very expensive so if you can find a good alternative that's, that's a quality part and can be uh, you know a lot less money, there's going to be a real avenue there for it. And, and the other thing that a lot of companies in this industry weren't doing very well over the last few years is really having good information, listing out all the models. Polaris, KTM, Husky, some of those types of models, a lot of people kind of ignored them. They only cared about the Japanese models. And so when you got to the, some of these other Brands and now into the UTV market, you can go to Arctic Cat and to Can Am and all these other brands. All Balls Racing Group's really good about finding all these fitment issue listings for all these models for all these different little pieces and you know, axles and A arms and rebuild kits for all um, prop shafts, finding little holes of product that will work.
1: Yeah, and I think I agree with what PJ was saying. They've managed to identify those gaps, like you said, Jay, also. They've identified those gaps and they've become that 800 pound gorilla in the market where they've dominated all of the major categories with key product that wears out essentially. You know, if you have an engine or a vehicle, things that do wear out, they've pretty much got everything covered from front axle to the rear axle on nearly every vehicle.
2: They're not looking to be this performance company, like for, with UTVs, for instance. They don't want to be this company that makes, you know, the oversized axles and the bigger A arms and all that stuff. They want to get to the stuff that's wearing out, you know, ball joints and uh, those types of things and things that are breaking with axles and things like that. And that's where they can find everything in that, say, UTV or ATV the the entire length of that unit that wears out or breaks they're going to list it and if there's any market there they're going to list it and uh, that that part's kind of cool and it's they just created this huge 1500 page catalog of just ATVs and UTV parts that it's pretty incredible
1: yeah which that's a major growing segment I would I think PJ would agree
0: yeah absolutely it's uh it it's what drives the dealership I work in we're a multi line dealer I carry a number of the brands you just talked about Polaris Can Am KTM, as well as Yamaha, but the UTV market—it's uh, over the last eight to ten years has taken over. It's what our, it's what fills our showroom and it's what fills our parking lot. As far as our service department goes, I see it being the biggest expanding area of the power sports market. So, how can you not be in that market? For sure.
2: And luckily for us, a lot of the parts guys are former, you know, or current dirt bike riders, right? they want, they're familiar with Cylinder Works, hot cams, hot rods. They're familiar with all of our brands from the dirt bike side. So they're good at, they're able to promote. And when they see it, you know, they're able to promote it right into the All Balls line of parts. So that part works really well.
1: Yeah. Naturally it translates right over, which is a, you know, always a good thing for a brand when you can cover more ground with the customer. Thinking back of all the project vehicles you've done over the years, Jay, you've done quite a few. It seems like every magazine you open, there's a there's a vehicle you've done, at least from the motorcycle side. What was your favorite project bike that you've ever built of all of them, which is probably literally, I'm going to guess, hundreds at this point?
2: Yes, hundreds. We do about 20 to 25 a year right now, That for the, and we've done that consistently the last few years. So it's a lot, It's and it's a lot to manage and keep track of. But as far as favorite builds, uh, I try not to be too attached to them because usually the bikes either I'm going to give it back or we sell it or it's, you know, so you can't get too attached to them. So that's one thing I try to keep, uh, keep you know, good there. So I, I, I think some of the, the bikes that I kind of enjoy the most are some of the older two strokes that are steel frame bikes. Like um, we built a, a replica for, you uh, it was like kind of David Bailey Rick Johnson replica CR250 it was a um, 85 or something 86 86 i think it was so anyway 86 and we got photos with with David with it with the whiskey throttle show and then Ricky rode it and out, out at Paris and that was really fun it was a pretty cool deal we did with Racer X and Pingree. so that one was kind of fun took a long time it was a lot more work than say a current with a current bike We can grab a 20 bike, and we don't have to do a lot. We don't got to go get the frame painted or anything, right? So we just throw on a a big bore kit, cams, and some mapping, and a pipe, and, man, the thing picks up. If it's a two, you know, some bikes, you know, it's anywhere from five to ten horsepower. So we can make a big difference real easily and get the suspension done, and we can – it's kind of, you know, relatively easy, I would say. But with those older two-strokes, it's kind of fun because you go get the frame painted, and then while it's down, you're doing all this other stuff. And and sometimes you're finding you got to get things welded and fixed. And, and sometimes, even though I don't like it, you have to find parts. So some, sometimes you're missing a part, and it's the uh, Honda stopped selling it a few years ago, so you got to go searching on eBay or find something somewhere. And, and we've had a, quite a bit of that with some of these older bikes we're we're having coming across.
1: Switching gears a little bit, Jay, let's talk about yourself. You're a longtime ra- rider and racer from, you say, 30 years ago. So tell us about how you got started riding and how that evolved into racing and then your entry into the industry.
2: Sure. So, you know, as a kid, first time I rode, you know, I just was, I was hooked just like, you know, all of us have felt, I think, when you, when you feel that, that first time. And so off and on, I, I would say I was about 10 or 12 first time I rode around a little bit. And then From there until, let's say, 18, just off and on would have bikes, but never really had enough money to keep everything even running. So never was there really an an ability to go hit the circuit and go race and all that kind of stuff. So raced just every once in a while, like maybe once or twice a summer would get a race in, and moved from California out to Missouri, and single mom, so just did what we could. My uncles, her brothers, are the one that got, got me into it a little bit, but- didn't have en- enough money to keep them running all the time. So moved back out to California after high school and got to working. And, and then I got into quads a little bit. It, uh, it's a phase I don't really like to talk about, but I did <laughs> ride quads for a little while. And not totally sure why, other than it was easier to be better at it right away. So I was better at it a little bit. But, and then um, I met some guys with Dirt Wheels Magazine and did a few shoots with them. That kind of got me a little bit into the industry a little bit. And Then when I was out there, we actually had a warehouse for Weisco in the same town that I was living in in California. and I met the guys there. It was Eric Forsberg and his wife were there at this warehouse. and That got me thinking, and I talked to them about and did an intro with the people in Ohio. and, and uh, Bob Anderson, Bob Gorman, um, Joanne Anderson, just some of the ma- most amazing people I, I've ever got the pleasure to work with in my life. So, I think Dave probably could feel uh, probably have some similar feelings, but uh, I didn't work with them day in day. But when I met them from the beginning, I knew that these were good people and uh, they really cared about their employees. So at that point, I was in my early twenties, and I couldn't even I couldn't even rent a car when I flew to places because I was under twenty five, and so I created a hassle. They would have to pick me up, and they'd make jokes about it, that, you know, and those kind of things. But they trusted in me and, and got me into it. And so as far as riding goes, that's when I kind of got riding more. Because at that point, right before I'd worked for them, then I had my own RM250 two-stroke that I'd bought on my own. And I think I had payments on it. And I got, I'd given up my quad phase and put that back in the closet and then was just riding dirt bikes and have never looked back since. And so got hooked up with Weisco, And that, that allowed me, as I was going to these races in Southern California, that allowed me to be kind of connected a little bit Keep into some year or two old bikes. I'd buy a used bike from the race team, a year or two old from Yamaha or Kawasaki over the years. And so I could always have a decent bike. And then that evolved in the, by 2000 or so, you know, in that, once you started getting in 98 to 2000 range in there, then we were able to, to stay on, then realizing, hey, we can, these can build in that. That allowed me to ride a lot more as that developed. And then as my son got older, then got him into riding, and that's been kind of where we've headed as far as racing goes. I've raced, I haven't raced probably in eight years or, or so, I, I would say. Um, and the only racing I would do is at REM, which is at Glen Helen. It's a kind of a vet group. It's not just for vets, but it's mainly vet riders. They're all pretty cool. But I've learned that, uh, you know, winning the plus forty or plus fifty, you know, B or C class doesn't really mean much. And so I just have had more fun riding a lot. And so we ride a lot of motocross practice and then go, I do a lot of trail riding now too. So a lot of trail riding, uh, in Utah and California. And so that's kind of where we go. I still probably, and I do videos about this on my channel, but I probably still prefer riding a good motocross day on a good safe track. You know, and safe is kind of an oxymoron word in motocross, but there are tracks that are a bit safer per se. And to have a good day on that track, I just love it. There's nothing like it. Go get a good moto in and, or two and uh, call it a day. So that, that's kind of where my riding has taken me over the years. Is And, and that was facilitated a lot through WISCO and then through these through the companies I worked for a lot in the industry. So you're around it a lot. And, and I've worked from home my whole life, basically, the last you know, 29 years I've worked from home in California remotely. So that's been a huge advantage. Obviously you can go ride on a Wednesday when Cui open or Glen Helen on a Thursday. So that makes it really nice that a lot of times I was able to ride and it wouldn't impact my uh, family life so much on the weekend.
1: That, which is a great story. And I, and I, hundred uh, percent agree with what you said about, uh, the Andersons and, and, uh, the start at Weisco, same group of people that I went to work for back in 1988. So I can definitely agree with, with, with your points about, you know, they're focused on employees and wanting to do well by them and, and run the business in a certain way. And I think they did. And it, that's, uh, that's, that was always a good thing. And now you're paying it forward, bringing your, your son into the sport. Now, are you going to let him ride a quad? Is that, uh, on the agenda or no?
2: No, no, we've had a no quad rule. A couple <laughs> times we had, we, we had some for projects and he actually really enjoyed them. We took him out to the sand dunes and they are pretty fun in the sand dunes, but we don't currently own any. And, uh, and with all this Razor talk and stuff, I'm trying to wait as long as I can before. We've had a Rhino and a Razor a little bit, but we don't have any right now. We've tried to kind of just stick to bikes until I can't ride them anymore.
1: There you go. And that's a good way to approach it for sure. I think we're all kind of gentlemen of our age who tend to tend to do the same thing. We go out on practice days and enjoy ourselves, get a good workout. You see your buddies, you hopefully get some good laps in and you come home in one piece, most importantly, that's the uh, that's the important thing.
2: Yeah, oh, for sure, and that's, and that's what I enjoy, and is being able to just, like you said, just have a good workout. In, in California, we have the real blessing this, in the wintertime for us is actually the best riding where, because it's not so hot and dry, we have, we've had actually pretty decent winters the last two winters, and so we cut a lot of hill tracks in, just places that we can just go cut a track in. No, no tractor, we just ride these hill tracks, and it's something I've done over the years and put a lot of my just some incredible tracks in and it's just a blast in the wintertime. So we go put these things in and you can go ride for a couple hours and get back, you know, and get, get the rest of the day of work in. So it works out really good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like uh, you know, that expression, you don't work a day in your life if you do what you love. And it sounds like you're able to do that and spread that into your family even further, which is even better news. So we're really, really happy for you, Jay and we appreciate you coming on the show today, and we like to take the last few minutes, if we can, if there's anybody specifically that you want to thank and uh, send us off, and that would be great.
2: Well, I got some. I got a huge list of people to thank, as far as like I mentioned the the, the Andersons and Kipps and Bob Gorman, Kurt Leverton and Evelina James at CNL. Just some great people I've worked with over the years. Um, I w- work with a guy named Steve Depping there at uh, at the All Balls Group. Just Just tremendous help, I mean, uh, and doing what I do for so long, I don't think you could do it and be successful without working with some great people, and most of the people in this industry really enjoy it, and so I've been able to work with some great people in that aspect, and then with, we didn't talk much about Dunlop, but I do work with Dunlop and Brock Glover, Brian Fleck, Mike Buckley, uh, Rob Fox, uh, but just a bunch of great group of guys that keep, you know, you would think it's a lot bigger company with the fact that it's the name Dunlop, but it's really run by a small group of guys and they do a great job. So that, that's that's kind of cool to be, and that's that's one thing that's really been really nice with all the, all the companies I work with, is that I work with just some of the best brands, you know, that exist. So it's not like I'm having to pedal something that I don't believe in. So it works really nice being able to work with great companies and great people.
1: Couldn't agree more, Jay. We really appreciate you coming on the show today and telling your story. By all means, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, we look forward to
2: talking in the future. That sounds awesome. Thanks, guys.
0: This week's trivia question of the week on Pit Pass was who was the only professional racer to win events in 125cc motocross, 250cc motocross, supercross, super bikers, and a national championship road race? The answer, of course, is Steve Wise, the amazing Steve Wise.
1: Multi-talented Steve Wise. He pretty much handled every discipline. That super bikers race, I remember when I was a kid, teenager, I guess watching the super bikers broadcast on wide world of sports used to show that every year where they would bring in racers from every discipline and put them on one racetrack and see who was the best.
0: And they got to pick their own bike, which I always, as a kid, I found interesting. So you had guys on easily identifiable CR 500s or KX 500, something like that. And then there were guys on flat track bikes. Yeah, there was
1: a couple of epic battles, actually, Uh, XR750s against CR500s, the works Honda CR500s on the racetrack, and, you know, the names on the racetrack all all together was always cool to me, because you'd see Andre Mahler from motocross up against Eddie Lawson and Kent Howard, who had just won national championships in motocross, and AMA dirt dirt track racers.
0: Yep, Bubba Schobert. Bubba Schobert. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was a lot of talent out there.
1: And they would build a racetrack that was kind of a combination of, I guess you could say it was a motocross track. There really wasn't much motocross track to it. It was more kind of a TT course, dirt with low jumps and fairly straightforward and easy, backed up to pavement. So the bikes would transition from dirt to pavement and then back to dirt and do yeah. successive
0: laps. It was clearly the... Uh the beginning of the idea that led to supermoto i would agree the track as in my memory and it might have been because i was young the track seemed longer like the laps were relatively long supermoto races i attended quite a few in nashville in wisconsin all over the country actually and their tracks were shorter by design which worked great because then everybody could watch it that track on tv when i watched it it seemed like it was a big track
1: yeah, it was. It uh, they did it at places like Carlsbad where they could expand it out and the lap times were were over 2 minutes. So nothing like a like a like uh, supermoto races are.
0: Yeah, supermotos are go-kart tracks for I mean Pretty essentially much, yeah. that's a lot of them are go-kart tracks with a bump out for their off-road section. Yeah. Or parking lots. The attraction
1: was all the names from the sport from the various disciplines going at it and that's actually how Steve Wise got into road racing was he did so well he went and won that event that Honda, his his uh, sponsor at the time, approached him and said, hey, you look pretty good on that pavement section. What do you think about trying road racing? And then he switched over from motocross over to uh, racing uh, road racing and made a pretty darn good career out of it.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, if you can win a national race, uh, you're at the sharp end. Thank you again to our guests for being with us today, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app where you'll get alerts when new episodes are uploaded. Of course, make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as pitpassmoto.com. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. We'd like to say a special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson, Chris Bishop, producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer Eric Colt. Now, I'm PJ, and I'm Dave. We'll see you next week on Pit Pass. Have fun riding.
3: Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock